Good day and welcome to the University of Minnesota podcast, University of Minnesota Extension CropCast. Uh, I'm your host, Dave Nikolai with University of Minnesota Extension. I'm a crops educator in Extension. My co-host is Dr. Seth Nave. Seth is University of Minnesota Extension soybean specialist. Uh, this is part two of a two-part series where we're interviewing and vet- talking with Dr. Craig Schaefer about his career here at the University of Minnesota. And uh, Seth, do you want to have the first question here in terms of reviewing some of the teaching situations and experiences that uh, both Craig has had and the department as well? Well, I guess, um, you know, I'm kind of a, I like things kind of structured. So how about kind of a chronological view, Craig? So give us, okay. give us kind of the update of what, what you know, re- remind us when you were hired and what your position description was and what the expectations from the department were for teaching when you first arrived. And uh, tell us a little bit about the demographics of the students that you had at the time and, and then kind of walk us through some of the change. I think, I think folks are really most interested in some of the change that uh, you've seen over time. Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Seth and Dave. Uh, glad to be back again and talk about uh, teaching. And um, a lot of us here at the university teach uh, using multiple methods to different clientele group. Um, I'm going to talk about several of those uh, approaches today. I first want to begin with <clears throat> the fact that I've I still get out to farmers to field days, and and uh, perhaps uh, many of you've been in this situation. Maybe there's someone listening in this situation. Um, maybe a former student of mine who's come up to me and said, "Hey, Dr. Schaefer, don't you, great forages class you taught. Glad to see you again. You know, and um, I'm there. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't know what to say. Thank you. Um, one time, a student. Uh, um, uh, told me about her, the most memorable part of a class I taught, um, and um, that was uh, introductory agronomy, was uh, the most memorable part was the, the food I bought in. I had a crop of the week, and it would be like corn or soybeans, and for corn, I would bring in corn chips, uh, anything with high fructose corn syrup. She didn't remember any agronomy, but she did remember those snacks. Okay, anyways... And I finally want to say this. I read this quote somewhere, and it's, I think, very appropriate for, for what I want to say and for all educators to know is that <clears throat> this quote, and I don't know who made it, maybe it was Abraham Lincoln or Bob Dylan, I don't know, but it was, the quote is that the, um, the uh, legacy of a teacher is never-ending. It lasts for generation to generation. Some people like Seth here may want to publish in the Cincinnati Journal of Agronomy. He'll work two years on a publication, get it out, and three people will read it. But in in the case of teaching, you know, our impact lasts for a long time. Maybe all they know is about the food, but <laughs> it's it's uh, there's a legacy about it. Well, let's let me get in. I you can edit or cut that all out if you want. But no anyways, way. no way. <laughs> Um, let's talk about the history. So I came here in 1977, and my uh, appointment uh, then uh, was 35% education, um, teaching, and classroom teaching, and 65% research. 
My research was to be in forages, and we talked a lot about that. Uh, and uh, the teaching uh, initially was to be a forage course and a forage research techniques course. And <clears throat> the first time I taught that forages class, there were about 50 students in it. Room was packed. I remember being real nervous. I, you know, if those of you who started a class for the first time, you know, you're, you, you're teaching, you're just trying to keep ahead of the students and know a little bit more about that than they, than they do. But over time, you get a little better at it. I actually remember some things. But 50 students I had in forages. And that's, you know, pasture, making hay, making silage, forage quality establishment, all of those great management things. Well, <clears throat> in about 1989, it was, 1990, our college uh, developed or uh, went into a program called Project Sunrise. I think they got a grant from the Kellogg Foundation to revolutionize our curriculum. So prior to that, there was an agronomy major. After Project Sunrise, there was not an agronomy major. Uh, there were three, I think, well, two majors that impacted us. One of them was agriculture industries market, and the other one was plant and animal systems. And those were the entry points for our, our students at that time. But because of that model and because we developed interdisciplinary courses, I feel that the emphasis on agronomy dropped. And maybe it was marketing, maybe it was coincident with the changes in the demographics of the agriculture population. But my enrollment in my forages class dropped and dropped and dropped. And I think the last time I taught it, it was there were nine students in there. So um, I thought, huh, well, is it really worthwhile doing it? So I went to teach other courses. Same way with the research techniques course. Um, so there was a change. I had to make a change. And at that time, uh, and this was probably then in the mid-90s, um, there were changes in our undergraduate uh, teaching group. Uh, and um, I began to teach introductory agronomy. Agronomy um, 1101, which changed then to 1103, but it was the introductory course. And that was an experience because you had, you know, it was very broad. It wasn't just forages. It was about corn and soybeans and all these other things I didn't know a lot about. And um, early on, I think our class, the, the, the background of our students was a lot more ag-related. Um, they understood a lot of the how to grow things. Are they from farms? But that changed. So over time, and this is from 19, let's say mid-1990s to 2021, last time I taught it, population changed dramatically from that ag background to general audience. And so introductory agronomy became crops, environment, and society. I got the name changed. Um, it was not a course that was required in any major. And um, I found that I had to do education, but I also had to do entertaining in that class. 
And that's when I started bringing in the crop of the week and the food of the week, too. And uh, so um, the downside of the food of the week is when I had extra food I had in my office, and I'd end up eating snacks and gain 10 pounds by the end of the semester. But that's it was for the benefit of the students. So my main course over many years, and we had 50 to 80 students in it, was that introduction of agronomy. Um, I also started uh, a class called the uh, Sustainable Ag Colloquium, and it also had an undergraduate component, Issues in Sustainable Agriculture, and that was started in the 90s. And at those times, sustainable agriculture, or use of that term, was novel. And uh, <clears throat> so I started that, and much lower enrollment, 25 students, but we taught that every year. The unique thing about that course was that it allowed me to uh, bring in to the class uh, actual farmers or those people who were related to agriculture and sustainable agriculture, you know, sustainable agriculture. We brought in organic farmers. Um, we brought in processors, uh, people who ran um, um, CSAs, all those kind of things. So that course continues today. Um, and, uh, but I think it is, was a real educational experience for the students. I think they got a lot out of that, at least based on all the feedback we've had. So those were the two major courses that I went with for my appointment. Um, I also, I don't know, I always tried to be an entrepreneur for teaching, even though this kind of went above my 35%. Um, I, uh, have had colleagues down in animal science for many years and, um, one of them, uh, Marsha Hathaway, uh, who was uh, who who has since retired, um, was very much into equine, and I started teaching a course with her called "The Horse in Your Backyard." Many agronomists laughed at that title. Okay, many, but you know, we had a hundred students in that class for as long as we taught it. A horse in your backyard. Now I got to say the horse. Horse in your backyard um, <clears throat> may not be, the emphasis may not be what you think it is. Uh, you know, it wasn't have, didn't have as much on it, in it on forages or pastures. <laughs> there was a lot in horse history, horse management, those kind of things. And those students who were recruited for that class or were interested in that class um, had a diverse interest. They were not traditional ag students. Um, so I also um, started a crop production class as part of a, a food systems major, and this was about 10 years ago. I taught it for about five years with Tom Michaels. It's changed somewhat. So that was another um, entrepreneurial thing I did. And um, I found, you know, I really like teaching, but teaching is all of, you probably know, was a lot of work and um you find that in the middle of the semester, you get you get kind of burnout, particularly when you're trying to do carry on some of your research work. So that's kind of a chronology of the courses. I've done other things, but I'll turn it back for you if you've. Well, uh, there's a you, you've opened a lot of topics or can of worms, depending on um, how you want to look at it. I, I'm you know maybe some of your last comments about course creation uh, and the entrepreneurial spirit. I think. You know, I think that the that begs the question about, um, you know, this kind of 
supply and demand or, or off course offerings um, and how those are structured. Um, and there's, you can really clearly identify this angle where, especially in, in the economic model where student credit hours drive some of the economics, um, the more students uh, folks teach, the better, um, the better they're received as, as professors and departments are rewarded and things like that. Uh, but it also serves a purpose to, you know, if, if students are interested in something, uh, then create a course and, and bring them in uh, and provide something that they are interested in. So at a large university like this, we can offer, you know, virtually anything. And if students want that, if it's something they're interested in, then they will come. And if, if student reviews are good and, and the students are happy with it, then, then the success will continue and there'll be uh, more courses. Um, the other side of it, of course, is, you know, requirements for graduation and, and, and core, core components, uh, for majors and things like that. But how do you feel about this system and, and how it's been developed and, and, um, how you've reacted to, um, you know, kind of to the environment and, 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 and how you develop your courses and, and your interest in those? I, I don't, I guess I don't have a very good question there, but I'm just wondering how, um, how, how we best serve the students that come to us. And I think we're trying to do that. And I guess my question is how, how successful do you think that we are in providing the content and the coursework that they really want a, and maybe need is a, is a second question. Okay. This is, and this is a trap trap question, you know, to <laughs> Seth. Um, I didn't, I didn't mean to trap you. Well, but, but. I think the, uh, uh, our whole society is is looking at universities and you know colleges, universities, and that educational model as terms of is it supplying the need um, for our society and for our students. So there's a significant investment that occurs from every student. I mean, there's various funds you can get support, but there's it's a significant investment, and the university systems have you know, evolved over time, I think in some ways not recognizing the needs of the students. Um, what, 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 what are they going to get out of it? Uh, is, is there a job? Now, I, as a parent, and this is, you're getting my own bias here, I uh, have three sons who graduated from, from um, college, and I emphasize to them that they need to get a degree where they could get a job. Um, majoring in history is fine, but, and I really like history, and everybody should have courses in it, but you realize when you, you get a degree in, in history, um, you're not necessarily going to be highly employable, um, maybe in teaching, maybe there's some niches. So where they went into computer design, engineering, they readily got jobs. I'm not saying that's for everyone. But let's get back to ag. What do we need to do in the future in agriculture? One, we're, we're really faced with a declining number of, of students from farms, from ag background. So the question is, how can we attract students to that area, to, to agriculture? There's a lot of emphasis now on agroecology, 
you know, because agriculture has tremendous impact on the environment. Um, and um, so, and, and there are many employment opportunities in that ar- area with the um, state agencies and federal agencies. So those are some other areas like that to continue, you know, trying to explore. Um, I know that's general, but um, I want to mention something else too. You know, so if you look at the um, the course programs that all the students take when for all the majors, and right now this department has a plant science major that a lot of students come through on. And there's also, it's now sustainable agriculture and food systems major, which we have students involved in, and our, um, we have courses in those programs. <clears throat> They're basically still the four-year programs. You start off, what do you need? Chemistry, maybe physics, biochemistry, you know, blah, 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 blah. And at the end of four years, there's X number of credits. So we work around this, these core courses, which we know people need. They, they need history, by the way, too. And I think some civics as well, based on what I've seen. Um, although we don't teach that anymore, I don't think. Um, is this model, this four-year model with these courses, is, is this the structure we need anymore? I've really long supported internships, and we've had internship programs here in agronomy horticulture and in the college. And I'm wondering whether we need to go to a model where, okay, take three years of courses that are focused on your major and then do a year of internship, internship which counts for credit. And I, that's something I think we need to explore. And, you know, you get an internship and everybody who's had one knows this. Either you learn to hate what you did and you never want to do that or it gives you foundational skills to go get a job. And so I, I, I really think that would be a way I would go and, and look at revising this course load. When we went from the, and this, this goes back in time again, we went to, from a quarter system to a semester system, you know, many years ago. And when that happened, I did not see a reduction in credit in some of these hard science majors. I, I, I think that there was not enough thought put into this change. But clearly here, we are at a, a, an institution, um, University of Minnesota, and there's many of these around the country. We have people here who are experts in educational program and design. And, and thinking ahead in terms of what the clients of the future will need. But I'm, I'm interested in this curriculum, and it seems like we're still stuck in many ways back in 1990 or before that. So I think that's the crux of the, the issue is that we're very traditional. We have a very conservative kind of a structure and foundation for what we do because we're mostly a research institution and that serves us very well for that. Um, you know, the nimbleness in, in research really occurs around the edges. It's, it's what are the new, what's the new science to follow, but the science itself doesn't necessarily change so much. Um, the question about teaching is, requires much more foresight 
Um, and it's, I think it's a much more, I think it's, it's easy to get a little bit behind the needs of the students. And I'm, I'm totally with you in terms of the internship angle, but I think the internship is, is almost a symptom of our challenge. I think if, if we had internships that really function for students, that shows that we know where students want to go and what they want to do. I'm not even sure that we even are at that point. Uh, we probably can't do a good job with internships because I think you alluded to this. We have, we have some students that have a farm background that may want to go back to the farm. We have some students that um, want to go into um, civil service type work. Um, or want to do some uh, NGO type work, those tend to be a little bit different groups and we may not do a good job of identifying and serving them individually. I think we, we definitely try, but I think there's more, there's more room for that. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, I wanted to go along with that question and, and go back to a little bit of history. When you started, Craig, in this situation, we were having quite a few students coming from the farm, undergraduates, would you say some of the emphasis, and even if you look in 2023, from the University of Minnesota emphasis compared to sister land-grant colleges at North Dakota State, South Dakota, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, we still have quite a a bit of emphasis in what I would call graduate student and in research. there's been a shift, and then parallel to that, you know, we've, we've had a reduction in the number of farms, maybe farm families, um, kind of the end of the baby boom, and so situations with that. So that's all kind of come together, but I, I look at a significant change here in, in terms of that and maybe a little bit of departmental emphasis and departmental politics that went along with that, but uh, that's all made a change too in, in some of these courses and in, in enrollment, has it not? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, things have changed. Things change. <laughs> Agriculture's changed dramatically. Um, I want to get back to Seth's comment about the internship. So, so um, Seth, I know you've had students work with you on internships or as summer workers. I've done a lot of that over time with you know, so students have gotten experience in field work. They also have an opportunity to work in laboratories here. And I, I feel like the plant science program has many less traditional ag students and is really focused a lot more on graduate education, training students to go to graduate ed- school. And, and for those students, I think it's ideal. I've worked a lot with the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture, and they had for many years had an internship program, and we had it part of the Sustainable Ag Minor, which I didn't talk about, where students could work with NGOs, work with the Sustainable Farming Association, with the Land Stewardship Project or other organizations, and get that experience. I've read uh, that... Graduates now from college or even high school as well are likely going to have three or four different jobs in their lives. Uh, So I really feel like a fossil because I came here. I've had the same job (laughs) since 
for over 40 years at University of Minnesota. But I think the way our society is, the way businesses have changed, uh, there's just this need to quickly, you know, to be changed, you know, and, and move up as well. Um, my son, um, my oldest son worked on one of the soybean projects here as a summer intern. And uh, it was a great experience for him because he vowed that he was never going to go back and work in production agriculture again. So instead, he got a degree in software design and has been very successful. That's what he likes to do. But I got I to gotta, uh, tell you here that he did have an opportunity again working with the Soybean Project with Art Killam who managed the NIR lab, and they did software work. So he did learn that from him, but he did not want to go to the field anymore. So <laughs> I should, probably should, maybe you should edit that out. I just, maybe it's too personal. <laughs> <laughs> what a, um, we talked a little bit before we started here off, off here about the technology of teaching and how that's changed uh, from – uh, when you started in, in terms of uh, what you found to be the most effective. And obviously, we, 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 you just mentioned things changed, but uh, let's just summarize a little bit. What was it, what was it like when you, when you came here? I mean, I, uh, I'm old enough to remember, you know, uh, here you have an overhead projector. You had Vern Cardwell up in the up front of the room, and he would write a little bit, and then he would crank a little bit more, and he'd get a new sound and write a little bit more. I mean, wh- what, what's been your experience where... Where have we been and where have you are and where, where are we going? Dave, I think we still have a few of those uh, overhead projectors around. Um, I know every once in a while in my office, I'm trying to slowly clean it out, I find these old yellow overheads that I had used for many years. Uh, and uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with or don't remember, an overhead basically is a light comes up from the bottom and it shines through a transparency, which you've written on, and there's a reversal so that it comes up on a screen, and instead of a chalkboard, which I've used as well, you use the overhead, and that was the latest technology uh, at the time. And then we had slides. So that term slides is still around now. Even though people do PowerPoint presentation, they're called slides. And they're called slides because the image was on a small, what was it about, two by two, two by two, two, by two pla- uh, plastic surrounded by um, um, uh, cardboard, and it would slide down in a projector, which projected it on the wall. And that was great technology, slides. And every room had a projection booth, and it would always be frustrating. I, for Everybody can, everybody who's done this will know because sometimes those dang slides got hung up in the projector and here you had your talk all ready to go and everything and then you get halfway through and they get jammed and three or four of them and one time I remember a guy had all his slides in a tray and some he they had actually a projectionist but he turned it upside down and they all got scrambled so theirs were slides and that was pretty neat you know Um, I mentioned the chalkboard already and you know, do that. That's that's really a slow way to go, but it's still can be effective. Uh, and then, um, then of course, now we have the PowerPoint, which I think is used way too much in classes. Um, it's easy to do, but um, you can get overload by just looking at that screen. 
I really, I really think that there are alternate approaches to teaching that really needs need to be considered. Um, we all we all know about the hybrid approach, where okay, so now you have people have op, um, opportunity through Canvas or another vehicle to look at these PowerPoint presentations or or to do some assignments and then get engaged in other ways. Um, one of the things I worked on, have worked on, and other people have done it as well, is case studies where there are problems and they're really integrative problems, no simple answer, um, where there's much more engaging engagement of the thought process of the student with the, um, with the material. And I think in many ways that's a better learning approach, particularly upper-level classes than uh, just another PowerPoint presentation, which the students get, you know, kind of bored of after a while anyways. So um, that's one, one, uh, one approach. We had a, um, a center here on campus, and it was run by Steve Simmons on case study development. And that, they, well, that was taught in several classes just based on case studies. And I've used those a lot, too. So. No, I think part of what's, what, you know, I, I keep going back to the fundamentals here with some of this, uh, this discussion, but I mean, I think part of the change that I think that we have to accept is that now with everyone with 24-7 um, access to the internet, they basically have, you know, we used to have encyclopedias that we went to to answer these questions, right? If you had to have a basic question answer you'd, you'd from some class, you'd just go to the World Book or the... Encyclopedia Britannica. Britannica, depending on your uh, on your resources, um, uh, and um, now you know we all have access to this. And many of us can't even do simple mathematics anymore. And um, the you know I think we can debate whether we're a better society or worse society for that. Uh, but I think it does force the question about these more integrative kind of discussions and problem solving at a higher level uh, rather than rote memory and in, in coursework. And so how do you, how do you feel about that as what, where's, what, what place does, uh, does the basics uh, have in, in, uh, in a, in a bachelor's uh, education and relative to these uh, more uh, deeper uh, integrative type of problem solving? So um, I guess in return, I'll ask you a question. And uh, Seth, um, how much do you think motivation, student motivation, plays into their education? It's huge. It's a huge factor. Huge factor. Huge, huge factor. They get, get, get out of it what they put <clears throat> into it yeah. is what, what my, you know, I, my summary. So... In my classes, I didn't do this in all the classes, but the introductory classes, I would tell the students at the beginning um, when we went over the grading policies, there's A, B, C, D, and whatever. <clears throat> and I used to tell them, look, I don't care what grade you get. You get the grade you really want to have. I'm going to support you in any way I can to get that grade. You may want an A, but you might be happy with a C, and that's okay with me. It depends on how motivated you are to get this, this A or B or C. And um, 
I've always looked at students as clients, customers. They paid good money to come to this class, and I had to deliver. I had to deliver. And, you know, you get those evaluations at the end of the year, which you can find if you give them food before they do the evaluations, you get better evaluation. Don't tell anybody about that. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. But anyways, they are not as important to me as the feedback you get through the years and some of the comments from the students you get. Um, those, do I like it or not? Yeah. Uh, it's it, the whole the whole system has to be based on motivation, I think, and whether you want an education. And I think students, before they invest in the money to go to the University of Minnesota or any other university and to this college, they need to make, they need to think about, don't go to college just because your parents want you to go there. Think about what you're going to do in your life. They may be immature at the time, but maybe they could work some. Maybe they could do a job or an internship before they even started college. That's another idea to set it up, you know. So, so how have the students changed from 1977 until the present in terms of their base knowledge and their motivation? What's your assessment? Uh, obviously, I mean, we, you know things have changed, but what, what have you seen in, in terms of people coming through the system? Well... I don't know if I can adequately address it, that question. I know that the the student backgrounds have changed dramatically. I think um, uh, instead of that ag background that we had, it's much less so. It's much more um, urban background, urban students coming to college. And uh, they still may be interested in agriculture, but they may be interested more in having community gardens or gardens or having a hobby farm versus a, you know, a dairy farm. So um, I think that probably the university has all that demographic information um, in hand about it. So I can't completely address it, the question. But the, um, what I do know is this, is that if you're going to develop a new course now, you better really think a lot about who that clientele is going to be or a new major. And um, like I was just mentioning, um, I think before we started, that I was been thinking about this forages class, but now I'm thinking it ought to be called greener pastures. Maybe there'll be people who can apply that more than the science and management of forages, which I don't even know if anybody knows what that term means. Well, marketing marketing's important. There's no question. Uh, I think it's it's the critical um, critical component to getting those people and the students in the door in the first place. But uh, as I think you've you've yeah, you've mentioned, you have to you have to supply them what they're looking for uh, in order for them to be satisfied with your course. And we certainly want that. So, David, what do you do? You have more questions for uh, for Craig? Well, I, I, anything else that you want to talk about as far as the future, uh, uh, maybe your, your interests um, in, in terms of things still here at the University of Minnesota. I know that you've been involved from an extension standpoint and trying to pull information and things together, but anything else that you think that you'll be engaged at from a teaching standpoint, or do you want to be that uh, guy in the background with a good reference and a good advice? 
<clears throat> I told that someone, uh, uh, gave this example to someone uh, just the other day. Because um, I am near the end of my career on this phase retirement, I'm involved in extension education. <clears throat> but come, um, I'm getting the years, I can't even remember the years, I think it's 1925 or 2025, <laughs> 2025, <clears throat> I think I want to be like those Frodo and those other characters in the Lord of the Rings. Do you remember at the end they got on that boat and they just sailed away into the mist, wave goodbye, just go like that? So, but before I do that, I want to talk about some other things. <clears throat> and many of you have been involved in this. <clears throat> you, I know you guys have, and that's graduate advising. <clears throat> that's a very important part of, of, of education, and it is very rewarding. And um, <clears throat> can be very challenging at times, but uh, many times you're dealing with highly motivated individuals who want to learn and learn how to do the research and then develop skills to do independent research. And there is a real legacy from graduate students that you've taught because they'll go on and teach or do research at other institutions, provided they ever finish their degree, right? <laughs> We've all had some students who weren't able to complete, <clears throat> and it's a little frustrating, but it's their decision, and, and you know, and I accept that. Um, <clears throat> I also um, have had the opportunity to advise uh, or been coordinators for some of the graduate programs, um, gradu the graduate one in, in agronomy, um, and um, I also started the uh, minor in sustainable agriculture graduate program and advised that for a number of years. And that was very interesting as well. So um, there's some other things I've done. Um, I would call them almost extracurricular. <clears throat> and I don't remember last time whether we talked about extension education very much. Um, but um, Throughout my career here, I've had the opportunity to work with some really great extension educators. Um, uh, there was Neil Martin, and he's the one that took me all around the states and down many rabbit holes and other places to <laughs> uh, many meetings. Um, you know, there's Paul Peterson uh, that I worked with, um, and um, <clears throat> I really found that very fulfilling to transfer the information I had developed in my research to producers. And um, because I think that's what we're about as a land-grant university. That was what my program has been about. It's very practical things. Uh, sure, there's been some basic science, but it's, there's a lot of practical aspects that I hope will improve the efficiency and, efficiency and economics of, of, of farming. Uh, so, um, I continue now to, uh, do, uh, some forage extension education, and I'm hoping that <clears throat> a full-time person could come on to replace me, uh, when I do sail off in that little boat. Um, I guess I ought to watch that movie again. I think it made me cry when I saw that. <clears throat> I felt sorry for those people. Yeah, but, um, the, the other thing um, that, um, that I've done and I, I really want to continue to do is develop some materials for the Internet. Um, several years ago, a um, colleague of mine, Chris, Chris Mancata, and um, 
I know other people had been on like Jeff Gonzalez and and um, maybe maybe you were on that too. We de- developed uh, <clears throat> some uh, organic transition, organic production materials that are on the internet. We developed this um, program called All About Corn. It's still there, and if anybody wants to, still being used. Yeah, and uh, that that by the way was generously funded by the corn growers, and um, really uh, really appreciative of that. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the, for for that product and the organic manuals that we developed that are online, some case studies, we were really looking at audiences, different audiences. The All About Corn was a lot of, it's, it's at a remedial level, kind of the high, high school, freshman, college level. The organic manuals are designed for producers, but also for educators. So we... We tried to develop some materials in an alternative approach and get it out there to see if they would uh, be used. And I think they have been used successfully. We certainly have a lot of opportunity, and uh, I'm going to engage you in in that mode uh, where you did on the corn, say, for example, on the alfalfa and and, uh, the forages. I've been involved recently quite a bit with mentoring uh, new extension educators. And again, they come from various backgrounds, not just from, uh, you know, a production farm, but whether they're local or regional. And then uh, I have an old co-worker in industry for mine that works down in Missouri. And uh, I know they would love to have that type of information. So there's plenty of opportunity. Uh, so don't sail off on that boat yet. We've got, uh, we've got more things for you to do if you'd like uh, along those, especially on the, on the Internet and uh, in terms of uh, information uh, with that. So, Seth, that's really about all I had. If you had anything else? It's been great. All right. Any last comments, uh, Craig, here before we... No, uh, I appreciate you uh, talking to me, and I appreciate all of those of you who have listened. Um, And uh, I've got to say that I... You know, I know that I've worked really hard at the university, but it's enjoyable. And um, one of the things that's really made it enjoyable is colleagues like Dave and Seth there as well as others over time. And when I do sail off, I'll miss you guys. Well, make sure you are close enough to the shore so we can still see you and wave at you uh, with that. So uh, thanks again, Craig. So this, our guest uh, on this episode has been Dr. Uh, Craig Schaefer, University of Minnesota uh, Extension Forager Specialist, also uh, faculty here at the University of Minnesota Agronomy Department. Uh, we want to say uh, thanks for uh, listening today, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, my co-host, University of Minnesota Extension Soybean Specialist. Uh, appreciate the opportunity uh, to have this hosted. And uh, again, thanks to Craig for taking the time and talking about his career in forages here in Minnesota. So thanks again for attending the University of Minnesota Extension Podcast CropCast. See you next time.